It's MegaCon, the largest comic book, anime, gaming, and multimedia event in the southeastern U.S. returns. MegaCon from March 21st through the 23rd, 2014 at the Orange County Convention Center in Magical Orlando, Florida. Confirmed comic book guests include Frank Bruner, Neil Adams, Bill Sinkevich, Mark Wade, Ron Mars, Greg Land, Michael Golden, Dennis Calero, George Perez, Brandon Peterson, Amanda Connor, Jimmy Palmiotti, Collie Hamner, Carl Story, Renee Winterstater, Billy Tucci, and Brian Polito. Just added Nick Bradshaw, Adam Kubert, Dan Jurgens, Mike Miller, Kevin Eastman, Joshua Ortega, Digger, Bart Sears, Ethan Van Skyver, Mike McCone, Frank Thierry, Mike Mayhew, and Chuck Dixon. Confirmed media guests include stars from AMC's The Walking Dead, Torchwood, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Smallville, Battlestar Galactica, Star Wars, Star Trek, and many, many, many more. Plus I, Scott Gardner, will be there representing the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. Tickets are available online now at www.megaconvention.com. Children 10 and under are free with paid adult ticket. That's Megacon 2014 at the Orange County Convention Center, Magical Orlando, Florida, March 21st through the 23rd. For information, contact info at megaconvention.com or visit www megaconvention.com that's megacon 2014 be there hello hello hey how's it going man it's going pretty good how you doing i'm doing all right you got a book picked i do you, you know keep, what i need to keep it a s- secret or what <laughs> what is your book oh my book's a piece of is you're it gonna, you're gonna love it <laughs> <laughs> Uh, let's see. I, I actually picked this one with you in mind, and I think you'll figure out why pretty easily. Uh-oh. Yes. All right. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I'm looking at it right here. Is that a Gil Kane cover? The, Gil- the cover is Gil Kane. Turn, the- turn to the next page. Uh, Wayne Boring. There you go. <laughs> That's what. Wow. <laughs> Back to the bin. I got my uh, my Charlie Niemeyer uh, care package today. Did you? Yes, and I got my... Well, I had posted when I got my uh, Russell Bragg care package. I had posted that See, on... now the- you're getting all this stuff, and I ain't getting... <laughs> not dick. <laughs> Which isn't really true, because I, I got a nice... Uh, I got a nice... Just out of the blue... Hang on, let me reach for it here. Mark Kalmbach sent me an issue of Life Magazine. A giant issue of life magazine this is from april 27th 1962 oh wow feature cover article man's journey to the moon preview of the greatest adventure of all time this looks really cool oh, very cool i haven't had a chance to talk about it on a show yet but it looks really neat so it's, it's i still got stuff trickling in i can't complain we have any idea what it, episode number this is uh i think it's 136 but i'm not 100 percent sure so i would probably say Go with go without uh, you know, just don't say dog? episode number. That's that's actually my niece's dog who I'm dog sitting for. <laughs> your dog sitting. Yeah, they're going away on vacation, so ah. <clears throat> sure to give All a quick right. la, 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 la. <laughs> All right, 
we ready to roll with this sucker then? Ready when you are, my friend. All right, <clears throat> here we go. Hello, and welcome to Back to the Bins. This is episode 735. My name is Scott Gardner, and with me is Paul Spataro. Hello. How's it going, Paul? It's going pretty good. How you doing? I'm doing fine. And lest we forget, also joining us for this episode, our very good friend, Bill Robinson. Say hello, Bill. Oh, sorry. I was eating a Pop-Tart. <laughs> <laughs> okay, then. <laughs> and, uh, hmm. What do we got for preamble this time around? Well... I would say I've stolen an idea from my friend J. David Weeder because uh, I'm getting kind of – I'm really – I'm fitting the mold of our show because I'm getting more and more disenchanted with new books. Mm-hmm. So what I did was I dis- I picked an era and basically I started collecting comics in 1974 mm-hmm. uh, before many of our listeners were born. Uh, and I basically – Started reading from January, you know, books cover dated January of 1974, and I'm planning on working my way up. Uh, I'm kind of just on Marvel right now and not DC, but I find it an interesting way to go through it. I've thought about doing that a good number of times, but uh, but I, I never have. But I've yeah, I mean, I don't know if I'm even going to get to February of 1974, but <laughs> you know, right now it's it's still kind of cool. I can only imagine how many books that must be, though. E- even in just one universe like that, that must be a lot of books. But that would be a cool way to do it. I know that uh, that years ago, when the whole scanning comics, you know, putting them up digitally and all that stuff started, there were huge torrents that were uh, they called them chronologies. Yes, and that's how they were doing those. And I always thought that looked like it would be a lot of fun to do um, different chronologies, whether it was like the whole entire company or just the character or whatever. That uh, it's it's a neat way to to uh, to go through. Well, I kind of um, got I kind of got. Uh waylaid i was doing the avengers and i I discussed this in uh i guess it'll have been at this point it'll be two weeks ago in the episode and i'm at i'm at your favorite i'm at the celestial madonna saga (laughs) and there's a point in there where they kind of veer off and they have a little just captain america just kind of comes in for a couple of panels and then leaves because of what's going on in his series Mm -hmm. so i took I took a detour and I started reading the Captain America issues, and these are right about that time, right about the beginning of 1974. And rather than jump back into the Avengers, I, I started getting interested in well, what else was coming out that month and what else was coming out, you know, right. at just at that time in general. And that's what pulled me into it. And I know when we had uh, David on a couple of months ago, uh, he had said he was doing basically a chronological read, and I don't remember what he was at as far as time periods go, but he was doing that. So I kind of stole his idea. There was a show I used to listen to, and I can't remember if I just stopped listening or they pod faded or what, but there was a show that was kind of doing that with Marvel where they started right with, I'm trying to remember, did they start with FF number one? But it was basically, it was like a Marvel chronology podcast. Mm Mm-hmm. And it was really good. Uh, I can't remember the you know who it was that was doing it now, but it it was interesting because it was it was that format. I'm trying to remember what Michael Bailey calls it that 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 uh, like index format. Mm-hmm. But instead of being focused on like one character or one team, this was one universe. So you never really knew what you were getting from from episode to episode. Like one episode would cover you know 
Ant-Man and his book. And then the next one would be, you know, this other character or this other team or whatever. And it was literally going like, you know, week, you know, month to month, sometimes week by week, you know, and just covering like and, and showing you and exploring the world building of the Marvel Universe. And it Are was you thinking really of uh, Bruce Rosenberg? Uh, name doesn't ring a bell. He does it, comic it, cast? No, I don't think that was it. Because okay, he has actually been doing that. Uh, Bruce is probably, I'd say, about five or six years older than I am. And uh, Damn, that's old. Yeah, well, they call him like the grandfather of podcasting and stuff, <laughs> which, you know, is kind of insulting <laughs> when you think about it. But uh, uh, he, he was doing it, he's calling it Marvel Month by Month. And mm. he, he does it as part of his comic cast uh, show. And in fact, uh, one of the guys who. Uh, uh, at least he was a listener of ours, and he's a Facebook friend, David Fiore. Mm-hmm. He he was on, and he did a couple of the books with him. And uh, at one point, I was corresponding with Bruce, and he inquired about me, you know, me maybe coming on. And I had said, sure, just let me know when you want to do it. And he was like, yeah, I'm not that organized. I was like, well, you know, I I appreciate the invite and all, but you know, you got to at least have a time to do it. I mean, I can't just, right. I can't just go on to Skype and look for you all the time. You know, we, we got to figure it out in advance. So it never really happened and didn't work out. But Bruce strikes me as a hell of a nice guy. And, uh, I wouldn't have minded going on with him. He had a couple of guys who were his contemporaries and they were doing, they started off, I think they did the Avengers and they were doing a, a clump of those. Then they did Thor and they did a bunch of those. Then they did fantastic four and they had, a, uh, you know, they had a real good perspective on it. Uh, and they also had a, a good eye for the artwork. And I think Bruce actually is an artist, uh, maybe not as his day job, but I believe he does uh, some artwork himself. But they were looking at it and they were you know, be able, basically able to look at the panels and say, okay, this is Kirby, but I think this page was inked by so-and-so, whereas even though the credits are this, it looks like it's inked by this guy. And it, it was real, real good to listen to. I, I would recommend that to people if they're interested in the real early days of Marvel. Right. Well, of course, now that I think about it, you know, that's what Mike Voiles is doing as well with DC. And he's gone like, you know, all the way back, you know, yeah. he's back, you know, pre-Superman. So, you know, and, and again, you know, showing the, the, the creation and the world building of, of the early DC universe. So I like those kind of things. I, I yeah. think it's an interesting. I wish I could remember the name of that show, though, because I was really digging it when it was coming out. But yeah, I, 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 I think Mike's show is, is fascinating just because of it. It's giving an era of comics that no one else is focusing on mm-hmm. and and that's it's it's good to hear i mean it's he's he's hitting a lot of stuff that i've never seen and probably never will see but it's still really interesting to hear and not so much hearing the world building of dc because that really didn't start until after superman but you're hearing just about the oh i don't know see i i, I was thrilled when he got to the uh the dr occult stuff because uh-huh. to my mind that's where the dc universe starts is with dr occult because that's your issue i mean you can you can argue for other characters and and stuff like that but dr call at least up until not you know to me the the dc universe effectively ends you know with uh um you know after the damn what do you call it you know when they when they created the the post infinite crisis and actually it wasn't even post infinite i'm trying to think of the the event that effectively ended like the from crisis to crisis era Superman, like they're covering on on Mike Bailey mm-hmm. and uh, Jeffrey Taylor's show. What was that second event? The uh, was it Infinite zero Crisis? Hour? No. I mean, you had you had Crisis, then you had Zero Hour, then you had Final. You had Infinite Crisis, then Final Crisis. Final Crisis. I guess it was Final when they went into 
the Superman that yeah, I guess it was the stupid Superman who sang. Yeah, yeah, I, that I that was post Infinite Crisis, right? Yes, that's if that's fi- that's Final Crisis. Yeah, and that to me is effectively like where the DC universe ends because I just after that I just didn't care anymore, you know, because I well. It was like I tried to follow it for a while and and just completely lost interest. So by the time of New Fifty Two, you know that's where a lot of you know people have bailed out. Was New Fifty Two? I'd actually bailed out a little bit prior to that because I just grown really disenchanted with it. But you know, up till that point, you know, I, I still consider that to be pretty much one timeline, more or less. And for that particular incarnation of the the dc universe I, I i've always considered it pretty much starting with dr occult because he was the one character that w- still lived in that universe then he went all the way back to 35 so mm-hmm. even though there, there were dc comics before you know a, not a whole lot of them but there were dc comics before dr occult popped up in uh in new fun number six that's pretty much where i i would consider like okay this is this is pretty much where the universe actually began because here's a character that would live in that universe throughout you know the whole history of the universe itself right no i mean you got a point there but i i i I, more more or less the point i was trying to hit on was not so much the world building as the industry building like you're almost seeing the right yeah the the development of how comic books came to be and and how the storytelling morphed into what it eventually became and it's it's fascinating Mm -hmm. definitely definitely well comment they were such a different type of thing you know and uh you know until superman came along and then kind of okay now this is viable now this is going to last at least you know for a while i'm sure even at that time they probably thought it was a flash in the pan that comics you know I think that's why there wasn't really any sort of consistency or, or continuity for the longest time until they realized, you know, a few years in that, hey, maybe this is going to be more than just a flash in the pan. Maybe this is something we can, uh, you know, have a, you know, keep around for a while and, mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. And it became what it, you know, what it became. But in those early days, I'd, I'd be surprised if any of them really thought that it was going to, to go for very long. I, I think it was. Uh, I think it was a novelty, and I think it was treated as such. Yeah, and and and, and that's why there's the whole controversy about them selling the rights to Superman because, you know, it turned out to be such a huge thing. But at the time, you know, it certainly nobody could have predicted what it was going to become. No, no, not at all, not at all. Well, let's see. What do we want to do? You said we do have some feedback, correct? Yeah, we got one piece of email. From just our, one. Just one piece oh. from our friend Russell Bragg. Well, we've been keeping up with the email now. Yeah, we have been, and Russell's been very consistent, which I appreciate. Yes, very, very much so as well as. uh, Let's see. Hi guys. Now, don't get me wrong. I did enjoy the episode, but there's just something missing when Doctor Bill or Scott Gardner aren't interacting with, and he again calls me Professor Paul, which we've already discussed. That (laughs) I I assume by the time uh, the next episode airs, and we uh, we let Russell know that 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 title doesn't fly and then uh, that'll that'll go away and maybe he'll come up with something else that's uh, equally complimentary and yet not uh, <laughs> not not uh, conflicting with other professors in our uh, area plus just speaking with go off on a tangent here what's up with professor allen not even uh, nominating us for anything just cuz he wasn't a guest did you see that <laughs> 
Well, I, I, see, I can't say anything because other shows I am a part of did get nominated. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm all right with that. Which, uh, which shows that you're part of get nominated? Because I'm, I'm it, it was kind of a it was kind of a backhanded compliment type of nomination. But uh, Tails got nominated for like uh, I forget what it was like shows that uh, what was it something like shows that are probably dead, but hopefully they're not that they're pretty good or some shit. I can't remember how how it was worded, but I was like, okay, I'll take that. Yeah, well, but, I uh, uh, you know, it, Professor Allen, you 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 don't get an invitation by. By snubbing me. <laughs> Just I, saying. Uh, you know, the first few years in, in podcasting, I you know, and the podcast awards came around, I, I got all excited and tried to drum up, you know, interest in it and, and get people to nominate and all that. And it never, it never went anywhere. And I, and I, I remember being like seriously depressed about. It. I mean, like really depressed. And like, damn, you know, we put so much work into this. I know our, our production values are so much higher than other shows and. You know, it was just a, uh, there was a lot of bitterness. And finally, you know, after several years, I finally come around to Chris Honeywell's way of thinking about it, which is, uh, it's all bullshit anyway. So well, I don't care. Uh, you know, I, I know you if it was the general podcast awards, you know, out there in the ether. But, uh, you know, Professor Allen's a friend of the show. I would think we'd at least get a mention. <laughs> or at least <laughs> you're I talking thought... specifically about his. Okay. Yes, yeah. I thought he was a friend of the show. Perhaps <laughs> I was wrong. <laughs> I, you know, I remember a couple of weeks ago I was saying very, very nice things about his shows, but uh, maybe I got to rethink that. I don't know. I uh, I actually guessed it on one of his shows. I don't yeah. think it's debuted just yet because um, he he was doing it as kind of a uh, like a stockpiling show, you know. So he mm-hmm. had some some episodes in the can. So I'm not exactly sure when it's going to hit, but uh, I had a hell of a good time. Alan's a great guy, and he was a gracious host and. Uh, I got I got nothing bad to say. So. Well, that's what I thought. <laughs> that's all I'm saying here. <laughs> you know, but then again, I'm not invited on any shows. Nobody, you know, you're the only one who was silly enough to invite me on. And then so I never a... left. I became the thing that doesn't leave. <laughs> so you has got a funny accent. Me? No, everybody else has an accent. I talk normal. <laughs> all right, back to Russell's letter. <laughs> uh, you guys have chemistry together. Thank you. Like I said, enjoying listening, but in a different way, I guess. Let me look at my notes. Insert girl from Ipanema tune here. (laughs) I've always been a Paul Williams fan. He wrote one of my favorite Carpenter's songs, We've Only Just Begun, and everyone's favorite Muppet song, The Rainbow Connection. I, too, enjoyed his Odd Couple appearance. It has always been one of my favorite sitcoms. Paul, did you like the movie as well, or just the TV show? Uh, The original movie with Jack Lemmon and Walter Matthau I liked very, very much. The uh, and then you well you go on to say did you like the reunion TV movie from 1993? I thought it was more recent than that. I didn't think it was 93. I thought it was more like closer to 2000. But no, I did not like it. I I seem to remember it being very comedy free and more of a you know kind of a, a soap opera-ish drama schmaltzy. Episode. Yeah, and and I was it the yeah. was it both of them back in it again? Yes. They were still alive in 93? They were alive later than that, because I'm pretty sure that episode was later than that. Huh. Uh, I saw the two of them on Broadway in The Sunshine Boys around 98, I would say. Maybe 99. Right. Uh, It was after Jack Klugman had his uh, throat operation. Excuse me. His throat operation. Right. Basically, totally credited Tony Randall with... uh, you know, getting him over it to the point where he was willing to get onto stage again. 
And, uh, you know, that was always my favorite show, so I was thrilled to go and see them. Did uh, did Brett Summers play Klugman's ex-wife on the show? Yes. That's what I thought. Okay, yeah, because she was actually his wife in real, or ex-wife in real life, too, yeah, right? Yeah, I believe they were already divorced by the time she was appearing on The Odd Couple. Oh, wow, that's wife. funny. If she wasn't, yeah. it wasn't too long after that. That's funny, because I, as I was telling you before we got started, I, I've been watching uh, Match Game. You know, because it's on it's on Game Show Network like every day, so I TiVo it and have been watching it. And uh, she uh, quite often takes little pot shots at him, which I think are, are I just I get a kick out of it. I think it's funny. I think I'm she's pretty funny. sure. I'm pretty sure that she was basically. I mean, when it came to fame, that she was pretty much a nobody, and that she actually had the spot on Match Game as a favor to Jack Klugman, and it turned out she was good because she she played well on that show. Yeah, uh, but I, I think it was actually just his his uh, reputation that got her that role or that. See, I always wondered like what was her claim to fame before she was on Match Game because you know whenever they have uh, other celebrities come to the show, you know, because there's always the regulars. You know, you got her, you've got uh, Charles Nelson Riley, and you've got Richard Dawson, um, Richard Dawson, and then everybody else rotates. And when you get these other people that come into the rotation. Uh, Gene, um, God, why is my brain Gene Rayburn? Not, Gene Rayburn, my brain is just not firing tonight. Gene Rayburn would say what you know, why they were there, and and what show or whatever they were doing, you know, whatever the their thing was that they had going on. So if it was, you know, uh, the one I was just watching, it was uh, Mel Tillis was one of the the celebrity guest stars. You know, he was talking about you know his country music thing and and him being on Hee Haw and stuff like that. But when it comes to Brett, he never would say like, okay, you know, you can go see her, you know, she's doing a, a stand-up routine here or whatever, it, just nothing ever. And I wondered, you know, what the, what the hell, why was she on this show? You know, not that I, because I, I, I thought she was great, but I just wondered, you know, okay, so she's a, you know, celebrity. So what's, how did she get that status kind of thing? Because mm-hmm. even Charles from time to time, he would say, you know, he would pimp some, uh, you know, Broadway show that he was doing, or you know, he was appearing here, or appearing there, and uh, I think even Dawson a couple of times. Well, Dawson he would pimp him for um, Family Feud right. every once in a while, but she was the only one. I, I could never remember him ever saying anything about appearing somewhere, or being in a show or a movie or anything. So I always wondered how exactly she got that gig. Yeah, well, I think it was just purely Jack Klugman got it for her. You know, who, just looking back, because I had watched, uh, I was watching that and a little bit of, uh, what was the other show? Tattletales mm-hmm. on on the Game Show Network. And you know, who, I tell you, she was really cute back then. Was uh, Elaine Joyce? <laughs> who uh, who's she? She's a blonde blonde lady. She married to Bobby Van. Name rings a bell. I'd probably know her if I saw her, but the I'm, I'm having trouble pulling. I mean, her I have no idea what you know at this point in life. Uh, you know, who knows? Because she's. <laughs> you know, it's got to be pretty old now, but uh, back in the 1970s, when you know, watching that stuff, she was she was really cute. They a lot of the the female um, celebrity guest stars they've had on Match Game, you know, and and I you know, for the longest time I've been watching it, it was Match Game 76, and now recently it just ticked over to Match Game 77. Oh, that's and, when it jumped the shark. <laughs> and they are, you know, a lot of the celebrity, uh, the female celebrity guest stars are really cute in that, you know, that 70s way. Yeah, and uh, and I I just get I get a big kick out of it, and it's funny you know you mentioned uh, Tattletales not long ago. Uh, Burt Convy was one of the celebrity guests on Match Game, 
And then typically following match game up until recently, it's now it's some other show, but the next show after match game on game show network was tattletale or not tattletales. It was, um, super password with, um, with Burt Convy as well. And, uh, for like several weeks, um, Nichelle Nichols was one of the celebrity guests on that show. And this was, I'm guessing based on the little snippets of conversation and, and her hairstyle and her look that this was right around like Star Trek four era, Mm -hmm. uh, Nichelle Nichols. So I I got a kick out of that too, but I love that old shit, man. Yeah, me too. I love stuff like that. The only thing is uh, I wish Game Show Network could find a way to sync it all so that they were all in the same year and basically replaying like like a day from that year. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like all the game shows that were on this particular day, this particular year. If they could do it that way and basically recreate that year in game shows on television, I think that'd be a lot of fun. I think it would too, but there's probably just as many people who would be turned off by that as turn- yeah. as would enjoy it because if it hits, if they hit an era that you're not interested in, you might be like, well, now I don't need to watch any of it. Right. So that might well, be the problem that- with it. The thing with with match game that's fun is that you know when it's taking place. Well, I, I would settle for this: is if you could tune into the show and the the damn listing, like when you hit the info button, would actually tell you, okay, this show originally aired. It would just give you more information. This episode is from this year, and the only way I know what year it is with match game is because it's part of the title of this damn show. You know, it's right. match game seventy seven. It's right in the title. You turn into something like Tattletales or or Super Password or something like that. You have no idea what year it is. You just kind of have to guess based on if there's a celebrity and what the what the topical references are. Right. But it well, would I be seem really to fun remember, to know exactly when it was. I seem to remember that Match Game and Tattletales were aired back to back in the afternoons uh, on whatever channel they were on. So it'd be nice for them to sync at least those two shows to the way that mm-hmm. they actually aired. So if you have a Match Game seventy seven episode, it's followed by a, a Tattletales from the same, you know, from the same basically that aired the same day. Yeah, it's they're not though. They're not no. doing that at all because for uh, like I say, up until recently, the next show after Match Game was uh, was Super Password, and uh, again, just guessing based on Uhura being on the show, I'm thinking that was about eighty four, eighty. Let me think. What the hell year did uh, Star Trek S- Star Trek Four came out? No, that was even later. That was Star Trek Four was about eighty well, six. Two two was in eighty two. Right. I think three was in eighty four. Eighty four. So it was about eighty six actually. Yeah, about there. Yeah, because I I had just gone into the service when I saw it for the first time. So yeah, it was even later than that. So almost ten years later. Pastors. Anyway, <laughs> back to Russell's letter. What the hell? Yeah. <laughs> what a shock that you and I are going off on tangents. Who would have thought? On tangents. Imagine that. I remember eight tracks very well. My first exposure to them was in 1976. My mom purchased our first car following the passing of my father. It was an Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser station wagon. It had an AM/FM radio with with eight track player. So you were like really modern at that point, Russell. One of the first eight tracks I remember listening to was a four-episode tape of the Adventures of Superman radio show. Cool. Wow, on an eight-track? Yeah. Wow. Doctor Roebling and the Voice Machine. Ah, memories. On to the <laughs> comics. Actually, when when you were uh, when you were visiting me when you were staying at uh, Pop Century, the section you were in was the seventies, right? Yes. 
and the the stairwells were eight track tapes. Do you remember that? They were uh, giant yes, eight track yes, tapes. Yes, I do. Yes. Yeah. The... And uh, I was training somebody at my resort. This going back a couple weeks, and uh, I was training some people, and uh, I knew they were young, but I, I had no idea just quite how young. And I'm driving around showing them, you know, the resort and where things were and what the different icons were and all that. And we're going around, and of course, they recognize bowling pins. They recognize, you know, yo-yos. They recognize Rubik's cubes. We get to the eight-track tapes. They're like, "What are those?" <laughs> and I felt like I was a hundred years old, dude. I was just like, "Really? You have no idea what an eight-track tape is?" <laughs> and you know, I mean, you know, a, a kid that's you know twenty twenty-one, they have no idea, no concept. They barely remember cassette tapes. Yeah. Have no concept well, of eight-track tapes. tapes. Basically, you know, all but. They're all but gone at this point, too. Mm-hmm. You know, yep. you, you know, a twenty-one-year-old kid might remember them, but I don't know that my sixteen-year-old son has ever seen one. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I don't think my kids have. But yeah, you talk about feeling old, dude. I was like, oh my god. Yeah, I just <laughs> feel my body desiccating as as we talk. About it. <laughs> Back to Russell's letter. Uh, Paul Marvel, Captain America and the Falcon, number one seventy. Back then, I knew more about Cap from cartoons, so I didn't know anything about his comics. I looked it up, and this story is in the trade paperback, Captain America and the Falcon's Secret Empire. Your synopsis intrigued me enough to want to purchase it, so I can read the whole story and see how it plays out. Cool. I hope you enjoy it. I know I do. Mm -hmm. Scott Rifen, DC. Adventures of Superman 474. I had heard this one on From Crisis to Crisis. A very good story, but a sad one. Luke, Independent, Huckleberry Hound, number 36. I remember the cartoon very well. More from Laugh Olympics than from his own cartoon. Of course, as Luke was summarizing, I had Oh My Darling Clementine playing in my head. (laughs) Overall, a very good episode. Guess I'd better close it out for now. Hope all is well with you guys. Thanks for keeping me entertained at work. Russell Bragg, Clarksburg, West Virginia. Thank you, Russell. I appreciate the emails, and I appreciate the feedback that you give us, and... uh, uh, then, well, I appreciate it. That's about all. And I guess <laughs> we'll go to the books, huh? Unless you got anything sounds, else. No, that sounds good to me. It was the dawn of the third age of comics, 15 years after the rise of the Comics Code Authority. The Bronze Age was a dream given form. Its goal? To portray superheroes in a way that was socially relevant by tackling real-world issues. It's a catch-all, a place to explore monsters, demons, gunslingers, gods, and superheroes alike. Writers and artists wrapped in house styles of sophisticated realism, creating the stuff of legends. There is no assurance of quality, but it's our last best hope for comic books. This is a retrospective of the true golden age. The year is 1970. The name of the podcast, Uncovering the Bronze Age. Tune into our feed for regular content at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com. Also home to the Quarterbin Podcast and the Short Box Showcase. All right, so I have the Marvel today. Uh, you have the DC. Bill, did you pick an independent? I, I don't know. That's going to see. That's the. You know, this is always the every two every two two months. I go into uh, deep evil hibernation because of work. Oh, yeah, thanks. (laughs) All right, I got the Marvel, and I picked Captain Marvel, number 24, from January of 1973. 
It's got a 20-cent cover price. The cover is by Gil Kane with Frank Giacoya and Gaspar Saldino. It shows Captain Marvel going mano a mano with a dude in a green jumpsuit who's ripping up a street lamp as Captain Marvel is throwing a haymaker. And the cover tells us, Dr. Mind, is he man or monster or both? The day (laughs) of the android man. The story is titled Death in High Places. It's written by Marv Wolfman. The art of all people for Marvel Comics is by Wayne Boring. It's inked by Ernie Chua, C-H-U-A. Lettered by Charlotte Jeter. Colored by George Russos and edited by Roy Thomas. I think we're going to have a lot to talk about with the artwork before this one's done. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Splash page shows a blonde woman taking aim with a rifle at a running Rick Jones and three increasingly closer shots of him looking through the scope of the rifle. She tells Dr. Mind that Rick Jones is approaching and Dr. Mind, who is off-panel, calls her Madam Sin and tells her to kill him. As she fires, all we hear is a click, which Dr. Mind, who is right behind her at that point, says is how he planned it. He's manipulating a remote control and says to release the rocket sled. We see that the doctor, who looks kind of deranged, is in a wheelchair, and in the same shot, a souped-up car is racing at Rick. While it races at him, he slams his wristbands together in order to switch places with Captain Marvel, who's in the negative zone. Uh, and for anybody who's not familiar with this period of Marvel, uh, they, I think, basically wanted to play on the Shazam Captain Marvel of Billy right. Batson and Captain Marvel. So what they did was they put one of them in the negative zone and they had these wristbands called nega bands and if you slammed them together they would switch places so the one who was on earth would go to the negative zone and the other one would take his place so it was I, I just like want to the... point out that's that's nega bands n-e-g-a yes ne- okay did, did it sound like i said mega with an <laughs> right, or... it, it just it just you know i just want to be clear <laughs> okay uh and now I lost my whole train of thought. You happy? <laughs> yes. Mission uh, accomplished. All right. In any event, Marvel isn't, isn't able to uh, stop the vehicle, so instead he redirects it to crash into a building. Uh, he doesn't switch back with Rick at that point, though, because he says he wants to find out what's going on. And we cut to Madam Sin and Dr. Mind, who is satisfied with the results of his tests. And more importantly, we see that Madam Sin is wearing only a pair of skin-tight red pants and a skin-tight long-sleeve red bra, which is kind of you know kind of risque for the time. We cut to Rick, who's complaining that he has a he has a date and wants to get some hooch from his girlfriend, and uh, apparently he convinces Marvel to switch with him because we cut again to Rick, who's picking up his girlfriend Luann, and they go to see Professor Savannah. Are you getting uh, anything with the names here with the Shazam Captain Marvel? We got Dr. Mind and Professor Savannah. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he introduces them. And, you know, just to stop here for a second, like, Rick wants to go on this date so bad, and they go to Cap- Professor Savannah's house to talk uh, science. I'm sure I'm sure Luann was really impressed. He's a Roman. He knows how to work the, the, the women, man. Yeah, you can understand why he was getting it. <laughs> so anyway, Savannah introduces them to his old friend, Leonard Mind, and Mind tells Rick that there's a strange change in his molecular structure that he might be able to correct. And so they immediately travel to Northern Virginia, 
where uh, Dr. Mind's facility is guarded by the military because of his experiments being top secret. Uh, we cut to Mind and Madame Sin around a giant model of the Pentagon. And uh, he says how he's planning to use Rick to invade the plant- Pentagon and take control of it. And as he goes off into a villainous rant, Rick just happens to be standing at a staircase watching him. Uh, Rick is spotted and the doctor sends his faux soldiers over to stop him. But before he can switch to Captain Marvel, uh, Rick decides he's going to handle this on his own. Then we have some really kind of embarrassingly bad artistic shots of Rick fighting and beating the guards. But Madame Sin immediately uses her power bowlers at Rick's ankle and punches him in the jaw and knocks him out. And at this point, Rick is unconscious, and Dr. Mind rises from his wheelchair, and his Snuggie falls off, and it reveals that he has an armored body. <laughs> he looks a lot like the Beyonder. And, and you know, shot looked... where he stands up out of the wheelchair. Yeah, he. he uh, I can, we'll, we'll talk art. <laughs> <laughs> Moments later, Rick wakes and his arms are tied behind his back. And for reasons that escape me once again, he decides to tell Rick about his story. And it seems he used to work creating weapons for the Pentagon, but he found out that he was dying of radiation poisoning and created an armored body to which he apparently was able to transport his own u- transplant his own human head and uh, now has dreams of ruling the world. I should note at this point that he looks absolutely nothing like the image on the cover of the guy who Captain Marvel is fighting. He demands that Rick help him with his plans or he'll kill Luann and Dr. Savannah, and Rick agrees. And so they head to the Pentagon, where Rick uses his Avengers ID to gain admission. Once they're inside, Mind sends an order to release the Helio Jets, which are these red missile-looking thingies. And as they explode, Rick uses the distraction to change into Captain Marvel, who begins to battle Dr. Mind. And as they fight, Mind is pretty much manhandling him as his soldiers are attacking the building. Mind is ready to go for a killing blow when Marvel grabs Cap- Madame Sin and, and basically holds her like in front of him like a human target, like a bitch. Uh, she flips him off, off of her. And at this point, in a way that the artwork really fails to convey, for some reason, Mind takes a killing shot at him, but hits Sin instead and apparently kills her. And then in some sort of crazed state of mind, he shoots himself in the head and the story ends. Really, really weird stuff there. Uh, and and to kind of explain, I picked this issue uh, because when I had gone through it, there was a time where I really liked the character of Captain Marvel, and it really was based on the Jim Starlin issues because uh, Jim Starlin was writing and drawing it when I first started buying it. And I realized not that long ago that I had never really read the history of him that led up to that point. So I got the issues and I started from the beginning when he appeared in uh, uh, was it Fantasy Masterpieces I think was his first issue or it might or, have been it might have been Marvel Superheroes Marvel at that Superheroes point. I think Well Fantasy Masterpieces became Marvel Superheroes I don't remember if it was before uh, or that's after right. that yeah. Yeah. Uh, but whatever the case may be I read the, the two issues he appeared in there and then I read the issues of his own series and to be totally honest with you until the point where Stalin took over the character he was pretty much a no personality a uh, boring character who had boring stories. And this was the last issue of the run before Stalin took over. And 
I was fascinated when I got to it with the fact that Wayne Boring had done art for Marvel because I didn't realize he ever drew anything for them. And I know that in the past you've been a pretty big Boring fan, so that was why I kind of saved this one for one time when we were on together to see what you would think of it. Oh, it's uh, it's wacky as hell, man. Um, right off the bat, yeah. Uh, who the hell is this guy on the cover? Because that's not who is in the story. Because the you know, on a quick glance, I thought it said uh, Mister Hyde, and then I, I, it was you that pointed out, no, 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 that's Doctor Mind. And I was, oh yeah, it does say Doctor Mind, doesn't it? Because he looks like Mr. Hyde. He looks a lot more like Mr. Hyde than he does Dr. Mind. Yeah, he he looks actually like a like a cross between like Mr. Hyde and uh, and Modoc because he his he's got a giant head. <laughs> but that is not the dude that's in the issue at all. So I don't know what you know. Did they just draw this with no concept of what you know what the character was actually going to look like in the finished story or something? I, I have no idea. That's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking they gave Gil Kane just a basic description of what the character was going to be, and this was his interpretation of it, right. as opposed to what was what was actually in the story. Uh, I'm wondering if at this point is I have no idea how old Wayne Boring was when he did this, but I'm thinking you know this for all I know this is the last book he ever drew. Oh no, no, Boring, uh, Boring was around at least into the the post crisis. Was he really? Oh, I, I, I didn't realize he was yeah, around that long. I think so. Um, because uh, Mike Bailey and I were just just discussing a book that uh, it was it's not post crisis but it's close to that era it's like 80, 83, 84. and uh, and he was he did a uh, he did some work on Superman so but yeah he was around I, I'm not sure what year he did pass away but he was around he just you know did less and less over time plus I if I'm not mistaken I think he did do the Superman origin in secret origins oh really which started up just after the crisis was over with it was like the the secret origin of the golden age superman mm-hmm. i think that was uh boring zard on that i do believe but anyway it, it's weird here because if the credits didn't say wayne boring there's not a whole lot of instances in this where i think i would have been able to pick him out i mean the the first one that really occurs to me is on page two where the bad guy's pointing at the car speeding at, at Rick and he's got this like kind of look on his face. <laughs> that is, I hate to say it, that's a Wayne Boring face right there. So that one's kind of a giveaway. But the, the best one I think in the entire book is on page three where Cap's hit by the car and he is going ass over tea kettle flipping through the air Again, between the way he's posed and the woman on the the far right side, right under the, the word wham, she looks like a Wayne Boring Lois Lane. Let me so, let me ask you something, interrupt you. Where did those people come from? Yeah, I wondered that. Too. None of them were in, in the panel when you see the car coming at him. Yeah. And, and when you first see Rick, the car is like two feet from him. How does he even have time to to stop and slam his wrists together? That was my thought as well, because that's a DC trope, big time. Those, those panels where, you know, the, the thing that the villain's wanting to happen is like a, a nanosecond away from happening, yet there's time for like an entire page worth of exposition it's like really hmm. i mean maybe the car's 
It, I mean, there's speed lines like crazy, but maybe the car's actually like in pop pop mode or something. I, I have no idea. It makes no sense at all. This book is not only weird, but it's it's really it's disappointing on so many levels. The 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 story's disappointing. It's Marv Wolfman, who I consider a master, and this story's not that great. Wayne Boring, I don't think it's really his fault. I think he's being overpowered by Choa in this. Possibly. But it starts right off disappointing because you know the first page, the the first panel, uh, you know Madam Sin or whatever her name is, she's got Rick lined up dead center bullseye on his forehead and then the next page the next panel you find out oh this is just a i'm just practicing it's like ah <laughs> you could have taken him out i hate rick jones take him <laughs> off the table already uh it's artwork wise i think the storytelling is terrible mm-hmm. um i i don't think it it, it follows a uh, a real a, a, a real sequence where you where you're following what's going on. Uh, there are some panels, you know, you pointed to the one where the car is racing at him. The panel just above that, where you first see Doctor Mind, uh, to me, it looks like it should be a panel in a Mad Magazine parody. The way he looks, right? Um, and it, and yet uh, on page, if you go to page five, the close up of Madame Sin, that looks like a Don Heck to me. The way he would draw women's faces. Yeah. Um, the the splash page I think is good. I like the way the splash page looks, with her taking aim and and the shot, the yeah. three shots of her. Uh, I also like there's a, there's a couple of other ones where, uh, you know, Rick Rick is kind of thinking back to his life with the Hulk and Captain America and Captain Marvel, and there's one panel where they're all three shown. I thought that was a pretty good panel. Uh, the the scene when when Captain Marvel is redirecting the car, I thought that was a nice action sequence. The scene when Rick is fighting the soldiers, I think, is one of the worst action sequences I've ever seen. If you go back to that panel of Rick reminiscing, it's basically Rick's origin story in a, in a, in a one panel nutshell. It's it's basically it's half the page. Mm-hmm. It's like a half a page splash. And he's thinking back to having teamed up with the Hulk, with being Bucky under Captain America, now you know being uh, partnered with Captain Marvel. If somebody was to show me that panel and say, name the artist, I would have said Frank Springer. Who would, would you be, say? That would be a that would not be a bad guess. Uh, if if you eliminated the close up of Rick at the bottom, I probably would have said Sal Buscema. Yeah, I can see that. The the power I, of Rick does not look like, well, the shot of the close up of Rick does not look like a Busema, but but everyone else in it, I thought think looks similar to what I would think. I sure as hell wouldn't have said Wayne Boring. No, absolutely not. I uh, I really think that he is being um, overpowered here by the inker, which is a shame because. You know, I, I don't want to be disparaging a Choi, but I, I've just never been a fan of his stuff. I, I've seen stuff of his that I thought was okay, but I, I'm overall I'm just not a fan. I have to claim I, some I, ignorance when it comes to Choi. I'm not really familiar with him. He did um, probably the thing of his I'd be most familiar with was he did some work on um, the Justice uh, the Justice Society when they came back. 
uh, in the seventies in all star comics. He did some stuff there. He did a lot of Batman covers. Mm -hmm. I think he did some Batman interior stuff too. He was just one of those, you know, he was around a lot in the seventies. I can't think of anything that he would be definitely like associated with per se. He just was kind of here, there and everywhere. But just one of those guys I, I, I never really thought a whole lot of his work. You know, it's it's it, you know, he he's just kind of workmanlike. And here I just I really think that he, he there, there's some there's something in the mashup that's just not working because Wayne Boring I don't, I mean, to my mind, I, I never thought that Wayne Boring lost it. You know, like a lot of artists, as they get older, they just kind of lose it, you know? Mm-hmm. And I never thought that of Wayne Boring. I, I enjoyed his stuff right up to the end of his life. So something's going on here. Maybe it was an attempt, even though, you know, he's clearly he's assigned to the book and everything. Maybe this was a, an attempt to kind of all right, we've got him on the book, but he's got a very DC style. He's got a very Superman-associated style, so let's let's dumb it down a little bit to make it more in line with Marvel House style kind of thing. I mean, does that wash? Uh, I don't know. I, I, I don't think they intentionally dumbed it down. I think, I think maybe he was not comfortable with the Marvel style. The, 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 yeah. Marvel, the Marvel method where you just Marvel get a plot method, and, yeah. and, and, and are told basically, you know, put it all together and then we'll, uh, you know, this, these, here, here's the high points of the story. Go ahead and draw it and I'll add the dialogue. Right. Because uh, that sequence, especially at the very, very end, when uh, Sin steps in the way of his blast and then he shoots himself in the head. Right. Uh, I mean, it makes no sense whatsoever. And, and I, I'm thinking Marvel, Marvel Wolfman got this thing and said, what the f- is this you <laughs> know okay, i'll just throw this dialogue in there and, and let it go because right. i don't know what to make of this so i'm thinking i'm thinking really that you know and and you can't blame the storytelling on the inking you know that's this that's boring true. yeah that's yeah that's true yeah uh, that's true you know you, you can blame the fine details on the inking certainly uh you know it, it almost has a look i'm trying to remember who the artist was uh of the uh, the sons of Superman and Batman. Oh, um, I tell you what, you vamp and I'll look that up because that that might be. Um, Cho, I'm not sure. That's Let's that's see. what it reminds me of. On not not consistently every panel, but a lot of it, it reminds me of that. And uh, you know, I wonder if maybe there is a connection there. And how the hell did he transplant his body onto his head onto an android body? I was. Yeah, I was going to ask you that. That what is that about? <laughs> even even with the art the way it is, why couldn't you just say, you know, I created this android or this this armored shell for myself to to maintain my life or whatever? And you know, it's so much more realistic. Than, well, not realistic, but it's so much more believable than than I transplanted my head onto this android body I created. That's just absolutely crazy. Who? I mean, who did that? He makes it sound like he did it himself. The way the the story reads, uh... he's wow, he's good. <laughs> because in the panel where it shows him, it, it it's like it's like a panel from the Weapon X story or something. You know, he's he's in his new outfit. He's got these I don't know, what the hell is that laser beams or or life support lines or something running into his his new robotic body mm-hmm. and there's his decapitated corpse 
in the background. <laughs> I'm glad you noticed that. <laughs> so yeah, he wow, he's a hell of a good doctor if he can pull that off. Wow, he's uh, he can decapitate himself and transport his own head onto a new robot body with absolutely no nurse or assistance whatsoever. That's the only thing I can think of on that is that he, you know, he was able to uh, get. You know, basically program a uh, computer to to follow his uh, directions. I mean, does that make any sense at all? Not really, but <laughs> this issue doesn't make any sense at all. <laughs> that's that's I, as, but yeah, I guess that's as close as I can come uh, to an explanation for it. But it's just weird. Did you find? Oh, here we have Super Sons. Um, I'm looking in. Uh, Wikipedia, source, yeah, of, source of all information. Give me uh, a Dick, give me Dick Dillon. Dick Dillon. Was it Dick Dillon in those? Yeah, that's what it says. Created okay. by Bob Haney and Dick Dillon. All right. Yeah, I was trying to find an issue that the Super Sons were actually in here. To here we go. Here's a Super Sons issue two twenty one. Dick any, Dillon. Yep, is, there there any, is there any inking credit on that though? Uh, the one I'm looking at is issue two twenty one. And the inking is uh, Murphy Anderson in this particular okay. one. But I'm sure that the inks were, were not consistent from... Well, maybe. I, I can't say that. Yep. And now I can. <laughs> yeah, this one's a Super Sons, and it's uh, Dick Dillon and Vinnie Coletta. So there you go. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it is Dick Dillon. At least in these couple I'm looking at. And for what it's worth, Wayne Boring passed away at the age of 81 in 1987. 87, yep. So he says, uh, Boring died of a heart attack following a brief comeback announced in one of his last published works, penciling a Golden Age Superman story written by Roy Thomas and inked by Jerry Ordway in Secret Origins Number 1, April 1986. So that was his last work? No, no, no. His final work was All-Star Squadron Number 64, December 1986, a recreation of Superman Number 19. And at that point, he let's say he was 81 when he passed away in 87, so that he was 80 when he did his last work, which, that's impressive. That is impressive. That is impressive. I mean, that issue, uh, that, that uh, Secret Origins uh, issue with the Golden Age Superman origin, I mean, it it's nice. I mean, I really like that. I can't remember having seen that. But I, I, I do think that you're right on this, that, that the inking probably overpowered his pencils because it, it yeah, doesn't I, I look so. like the line work that i'm familiar with from boring i mean i i am always you know I, you you say Wayne boring to me the first thing i think is barrel-chested superman right and there's there's nobody who fits that bill here although if he had drawn dr mind more like that he would have been closer to what he's depicted as on the cover that's true but still, somebody yeah, there somebody didn't get a memo somewhere because they are they are very different from each other. But uh, I, I just pulled up his credits just to take a look here, and it's like holy cow! I mean, it's it's almost exclusively Superman. You know what? This is not his only issue of Captain Marvel either. He actually did issues twenty two and twenty three. Okay, you know, it was a little while since I since I did that reading story, the reading of the, of the Captain Marvel issues that I mentioned, and if I'm remembering correctly, to be honest with you, I think 
this one might be superior to those as far as the artwork. Because I remember <laughs> reading one and, and being really let down with the quality of the, the artwork, uh, more so than I was with this one. When I reread this one, I was thinking, oh, this isn't that bad. He did, did his next credit after this, uh, according to Mike's Amazing World, he did an issue of Thor. Ah, that I gotta see. What what number is that? Thor 2... What the hell issue is this? 280. Thor 2... Oh, it's with uh, Hyperion. Hyperion's decking Thor on the cover of the book. It says Wayne, uh, Wayne Boring and Tom Palmer. I wonder if I've got... I've gotta see this now. Have I got this issue? Because if I've got this issue, this is going to be my Marvel pick for next time around. <laughs> i got to see if I own this issue. Let's see. Thor 280. Ooh, I do. All right, there you go. Next time we get together, I'm going to do uh, Thor 280. Because I've just got to see Wayne Boring inked by Tom Palmer with... Uh, you know, I, I love Thor. And Hyperion's always been one of my favorite obscure characters. So I gotta see this. This should be good. This is basic. That'll basically be Superman versus Thor. Yeah, that's true. Cause, that's cause, a good point. Know, Hi- that didn't yeah, occur to me. Hyperion's basically Marvel Superman, or at least he was up until that lame ass. What was his name? Came along, the Sentry. Oh, the Sentry. Yeah, but they yeah. they managed to distance him from uh, from Superman at the end, at least. Yeah. I just took a quick look at it, and the uh, all work doesn't look bad. Tom Palmer is is a, is a master in his own right as far as oh, inking goes. So, it's it's not surprising that he was able to make you know <laughs> that he was able to do better than Ernie Choa. Back back to this issue, uh, you know, with with the new rating system that we implemented last time, uh, I gotta give this one, you know, and and the rating system is basically a letter grade like you would get in school with C being an average book and then going up on quality or down on lack of quality. I'm not quite ready to give this an F, but I'm so, so close to it that I'm giving <laughs> it a, a D minus. And, and that's overall artwork and story. I'm giving them both the same, the same grade. Doesn't look like this particular uh, story has ever been reprinted. Either. And with good reason. <laughs> well, uh, the, only, the only reason I mention that is, for one, I, I'm going to try going to try to take more uh, notice of that and and take the time to point these things out uh, as they you know as I remember to do it. But also, Captain Marvel comics have been reprinted an awful lot of times because I know there was that prestige format. Uh, well, not really prestige format. It was more of like a Baxter format reprinting of of Captain America stories there back in, what was that? Late 80s, early 90s, something like that. It was called The Life of Captain Marvel. And again, that, that? That's, that is the Jim Starlin run. It's all Starlin? Okay, yeah, yeah that doesn't surprise me. It, I think it was actually called The Life and Death of Captain Marvel, wasn't it? Maybe, it may be. Let's see, I think I have some issues of that. Let's see, is that what it's called? Life, uh, no, I've got here Life of Captain Marvel. Okay, well, you know what? That may be the trade, might be The Life and Death of Captain Marvel could be see i it's weird because i consider the death of captain marvel one of the great marvel comics you know it's it's one of the great stories i always like that of course i mean that came out right at the time i was really getting into comics too but i've always really enjoyed that story i thought it was one of the more touching uh you know death stories in comics Mm -hmm. but 
I was only peripherally aware of the character because I'd only ever seen him a handful of times. And he was one of those ones, you know, like when I was first getting in, you know, like anybody does, when you first get into comics, you kind of sample a little bit of everything. Let me try some of this. Let me try some of that. And you quickly establish who you like, who you don't like. And Captain Marvel, Marvel's Captain Marvel, quickly went into that I don't care for this guy category for exactly what you said before. He was very bland and personalityless to me. Every time I saw him, he just there there wasn't anything about him to me that made him like unique or stand out or anything. And I can remember him popping up in like Marvel two and one and these different places. And I just every time I sampled him, I was like, I really just don't like this guy. I think one of the most exciting things I ever saw him in was like a friggin' hostess ad. You know, <laughs> he just he just never really did anything for me. And then along comes the death of Captain Marvel. And here I find myself feeling sorry for a guy that I, I just never thought was all that interesting to begin with. And it, and so in that funny kind of way, it it seems really cruel to say it, but it's just honest. I think the best thing, the best story he ever had, the best thing he ever did was when he died, because now everybody knows him, you know, now everybody remembers him from that story. But prior to that, I I don't know. But it's funny. I I, I think that, and I don't know this for a fact, but just my speculation is I, I think that they created the character in an effort to steal the name. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think, it was, I think that was the whole that was their whole idea was, okay, let's create a, cap, a character named Captain Marvel right now while we can, and then we'll get the rights and we'll screw over anybody else who wants to use mm-hmm. you know, the traditional Captain Marvel, especially since we're Marvel Comics and we should own Captain Marvel. Exactly. And, and, and I don't think they ever knew where to go with the character. The first mm-hmm. couple of issues were drawn by uh, Gene Colan, and the artwork is fine. I mean, I, I love Gene Colan's work, but... The story is just kind of like plodding along, and it's the, they changed focus of the series a couple of times because it seemed like they just didn't know what to do. Uh, and and it wasn't until Stalin took over that that the character started to actually reach some of its potential. And and I don't think there was enough time to really actually hit that potential. And then eventually it was okay. Let's just kill him off. I agree with you. I, I think that is entirely why this character existed was that somebody, and probably Stan, but somebody at Marvel realized that, hey, we're Marvel Comics, and hey, remember that old, you know, the Golden Age Captain? I bet we could we could do something with that. I bet you that's expired or whatever the, the deal is. And so they created, you know, their own Captain Marvel to cash in, on, you know, potentially cash in on, hey, Marvel Comics, Captain Marvel, Natural Fit. And, yeah, never really knew what to do with him. But it's funny, you know, I, I actually was reading through some Captain Marvel. This this goes back a few months. Um, last year at Megacon, I met uh, Pat Broderick, who's always been one of my favorite artists because I, he's he's on my list of, like, favorite uh, underappreciated artists because, I, I, you know, you and I were having a great conversation before we got started about the fact that, you know, we've never heard anybody that knows the guy say, oh, I don't like him. You know, everybody that knows him seems to really like him and appreciate him. I just think enough, not enough people know him. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I don't think he's he's just not one of those high profile artists from from back, you know, back in the day. But I've always been a big fan of his art. I like it a lot. And I was watching him do sketches and uh, and he did a couple of like full blown commissions, 
And a couple of them were really beautiful Captain Marvel commissions. And when I saw him doing those, then it kind of rung a bell that, oh, yeah, that's right. He did some Captain Marvel. I'd completely forgotten that he ever did any of it. And so I was actually on a read through of Pat Broderick work. And I was reading through uh, Captain Marvel stuff not long ago. And that starts right around, I think it's like issue 55 or something like that. And it didn't run for long because the the series didn't last much longer after fifty five. It canceled at like issue like sixty. I had this pulled up. I a think it was sixty two. Sixty two. They actually yeah. had extra issues at that point that weren't published, and then they relaunched Marvel Spotlight and they printed them in there. Right. It's like the first what three issues I think of something Marvel like Spotlight, three, four, something somewhere like around that. there. And like I say, I was I was on a read through of this stuff. And uh, and then not long ago, uh, I had something happen with my iPad, and I lost every I lost all my comics that were on there. So I, I don't know where I left off on my read through, but I'm going to try to go back to it at some point and finish it out. But I was really enjoying that stuff from a strictly artistic standpoint. I mean, not that the stories weren't good or anything, but it, it's really strange because typically Marvel Comics was plagued with. You'd have a consistent writer, but an inconsistent art team. This was exactly the opposite. You had a consistent art team in Pat Broderick, and I forget who he was teamed up with, art, um, inking wise. I think the inker might have changed from issue to issue, but oh, it, was, did it? it was consistently Pat Broderick. Consistently Broderick, but then the writer was you know, kept changing. And uh, I know Doug Mensch was in there quite a little bit, but. Uh, but I don't remember. I don't think it was consistently him. So the stories and the storylines kind of suffered for that inconsistency. But Broderick himself, uh, his work on it, I, I was really digging. I was really enjoying. He's bringing something really nice to it. Yeah, I'm looking here. It's like 55, written by Scott Edelman, inked by Bob Wycheck. Then you've got very next issue 56, Doug Mensch. Bob Wycheck's still the inker though. And you've got Roger McKenzie, and that's the one with Thor. Doug mm-hmm. Mensch again. Yeah, this is the one I need to check out. We were talking about this a little bit ago, uh, issue 58. Written by Doug Mensch, it's Captain Marvel versus uh, Drax the Destroyer, who's going to be in the upcoming um, Guardians of the Galaxy movie. Penciled by Pat Broderick, inked by Bob McCloud. I got to see that. That's mm-hmm. got to be a hell of a good art team right there. Those guys are fantastic. And I would imagine they complement each other very well. It's actually a two-parter because the next issue is also uh, the same team, Men- Mensch, Broderick, and uh, – well, actually, it's Patterson on that one, but still. I like Bruce Patterson, too. He's a, he's a hell of a good artist. So, yeah, it, it changed. Now, you, you say Pat to Broderick issue. to me. The first thing I think of is Micronauts. And I'm just curious really? what the first thing that you think of. Fury of Firestorm, number oh, one. Oh, yeah, there you go. That was the first, I think, I'm almost positive that was my first exposure to him, even uh, above and beyond the Micronauts. Because I remember when the Arch, when uh, Golden left the Micronauts, I left the Micronauts. Because I just, I, I love the Micronauts. I thought they were awesome. But as soon as I saw the art change and it wasn't Golden anymore, I, I bailed. I just was like, mm, I just, because I don't think... Now, correct me if I'm wrong, because I may be dead wrong in this, but I don't think it went straight from Golden to Broderick, did it? Uh, I think it went to like, from Golden to like 
Steve Ditko or somebody. And See, then no, I think Steve I, Ditko did an annual. I don't think he ever did the proper series. I do know that Gil Kane came on it at one point, but I think that was after Broderick. Gil Kane came onto Micronauts? Yes. Around, I think that's, around issue 50 or so. That's on my list of one of those, you know, one of these days projects to go back and finish the Micronauts because I never did. It did tend to get a little repetitive because I think eventually they realized that if Causa wasn't the villain, that it didn't fly. Right. And they kept having to basically resurrect him. Well, that was one of my problems with the Micronauts is that they had Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle Syndrome. That, again, like you said, without Karza, they didn't have anybody. And that that's the pitfall of, of things like this is when you've got an awesome bad guy, but only one. What do you do? You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I so, think that ultimately was the problem. So let me see. Uh, I have Mike's Amazing World here in front of me, so I pulled. I did a thing on Pat Broderick. Okay, so he came on to Micronauts at 19. I know Golden left at 12, so let's see. Who was between the two of these guys? So number 13, drum roll, please. What? Oh, it was Howard Chaikin. Okay, so I can see that. I, I can see with my taste back in the day that, okay, this is Howard Chaikin and Al Milgram. So I, you know... Without having the issue in front of me, I'm going to go out on a limb and say it's probably ugly, <laughs> and uh, and that that would be why I said, "Ooh, I think I'm done with this book." Because yeah, all right, yeah, you got Chicken Milgram, Chicken Milgram, Chicken Milgram. Yeah, it looks like it's pretty much consistently. Yeah, it is. It's cons- yeah. That's funny though. I do have this. I have 17, which again, Chicken Milgram. So it looks like it's pretty much consistently them until. Uh, Broderick comes along. Let's see. Who is Broderick inked by? Armando Gill. I know the name, but I, I can't picture the style in my... What, what is his style like? Armando Gill? I could Armando not tell Gil. you offhand. Which yeah. issue are we talking about? 19 was the one he came on uh, came on the issue with. Uh, I, As I can recall it, I think the issue was very Pat Broderick. I don't I, I don't think there was a heavy inking hand on it because I seem to remember his run being very consistent. This is funny. Uh, Michael Golden actually did the cover on that issue. And see, I thought once 12 was over, I didn't think that he did any more Micronauts, but apparently he came back and did at least one cover. So that's interesting. See, I, th- I mean, Gold, I don't think you'd ever mis- mix up Golden and, and uh, Pat Broderick. No, but but I do think their styles did have a similarity to them as far as how they handled the Micronauts. The big thing about Pat Broderick to me is always, you know, everybody seems to have this, you know, Elvis hair. Yeah, <laughs> that's the yeah. only thing about it. Oh, that, yeah, that is true. But other than that, I I, I thought he was, you know, he kind of kept it. Like I said, you wouldn't mistake the art for each other. You wouldn't mix them up. But I thought it had a similar feel on the Broderick that it, that it had on the Golden. Uh, just as far as reading the stories, maybe maybe I, I guess I'm getting probably more into the storytelling nature of it. But I, I I think the stories felt the same. Well, a lot of people, you know, you were asking me if you know Pat Broderick, you know, what comes to mind, you know, what what book or what title or whatever. A lot of people forget that immediately before they hit superstardom under um, Keith Giffen, Legion of Superheroes. He did four, I think it was four issues. 
I didn't realize he ever did that. Yeah, yeah, he did four issues of I'd Legion. Like to see that? Yeah, it's actually not, it's good stuff. It's really good. Um, especially there's one cover where it's uh, is it Sunboy? Sunboy fighting. Ah, oh, who's the the villain that wore like the? It was a villain whose outfit looked a lot like Wildfire. Ah, damn it, I can't remember. But anyway, it's a really good cover on that issue, and that's that's a Broderick cover, and he did the interiors. But if if it wasn't Fire Fury of Firestorm, because that's what I'm always going to associate him with, is mm-hmm. Fury of Firestorm. But if it wasn't Fury of Firestorm, the other big one for me that I I will always associate him with was was uh, Did you ever read Doom 2099? I bought a bunch of it but i really didn't read it the only one i can I, that i can remember reading offhand was uh the one where they had a possibly recorrect refer excuse me resurrected captain america which turned out to not be well i don't remember that it's been a while since i've read it but no i don't remember that with captain america i know that they had uh they uh faked thor's return at one point uh, in the 2099 storyline. See, I have a feeling, I, I, I don't know this for a fact, but just based on things I've seen around on the internet, postings and such, I, I have a feeling that 2099 doesn't have a very good reputation these days, especially with people that probably never read it or didn't read much of it. They've just come to know what they know about it through you know through again through the net or having read about it in some fanzine or something like that but while the the quality of 29 uh 29 2099 varied greatly from title to title and things you know and from from team to team you know creative team to creative team there were certain titles that were still really good and i i will always put uh Doom 2099 as the top of the heap. I thought that book was consistently great, at least as long as Broderick was on it. As soon as he left that book, I can't remember if the writer changed, but the art team definitely changed, and uh, and it went from his very distinctive, you know, very clean style to I can't remember who the next team was, but oh, it was horrible. I mean, it was really, really bad, and the book just quickly tanked after that, which was a mm. real shame. I think the only but 2099 book that maintained any reputation, you know, of quality afterwards is Spider-Man. I think everything Spider-Man. else is routinely dismissed by the public at large. Yeah. It's a shame. Yeah, yeah, that see, that's my impression too. Is that it is largely dismissed as ah, it was all crap. And it wasn't all crap. It was, you know, it, there was some of it was really good stuff, you know, really quality stuff. Doom I liked because the whole premise with Doom was it actually was Doctor Doom. All these other ones were a twenty ninety nine. Uh, I keep saying that twenty ninety nine um, interpretation. You know, it's like a new incarnation. Like Spider Man was a new Spider Man. Yeah, they and were the all, Punisher, all legacy heroes. Legacy, exactly. Whereas Doom, supposedly, was the real Doctor Doom transported. And that was the thing, too, is I I can't remember if they ever did explain exactly what the deal was. Was it really him? Was he actually really transported? Because part of the catch with that title was they kept you strung along because Doom couldn't remember how he got there. And so they they kept you as the reader strung along with the idea that every once in a while Doom would remember a little a little more and a little more from you know issue to issue or storyline to storyline, 
more and more of his memories would start to come back to him. And so you're constantly teased. Is he going to remember? Is he going to finally, you know, remember how he got here and, and basically his final battle in the 20th century? And I can't, now I can't remember how that ever resolved. I can't remember if it ever resolved that it really was him or it, if it was, um, do you remember the kid, Kristoff? Kristoff, yeah. Yeah, and I, I can't remember which it turned out to be. But that was one of the hooks, and that was the thing that hooked me on it was that, um, you know, that this really was Doom, that he had basically survived the the age of heroes, and now here he was, and everything he'd always said, you know, I could rule the world if it wasn't for damn Reed Richards and the Fantastic Four. Well, now it was time to put his money where his mouth was. Now there was no Reed Richards. Now there was no Fantastic Four. Could he do it? And goddamn if he didn't. But That's I, what I, I don't liked recall what the premise was of Fantastic Four 2099, but I do know that eventually they did meet up with Doom 29. I don't, yeah. I don't know what happened in the story, but I do know I, that they did meet up. I only have scattered issues of that, and again, if I'm not mistaken, I think it was them. I think it was actually the Fantastic Four transported through time, possibly coming looking for Doom, but I can't remember now. But uh, that was about the time I was kind of growing disenchanted with the the 2099 universe, so uh, so I stopped reading. Well, I, I think they they made the mistake of expanding it just a little too much. Too like, far, it went too far. Yeah, that was the thing. You know, I, I think Hulk twenty ninety nine was not a well accepted character. Uh, X Men twenty ninety nine, although I hear some of those stories aren't bad, uh, I do think that they just weren't accepted by the public at large because it was just oversaturation. Mm hmm. It, it was because. The whole idea with it was that when it when it started, it was unique. You had it was only a handful. It was Spider-Man, Doom, um, Ravage, and there was a fourth. I heard one. Ravage is awful. I've never read it, but I've heard it's awful. But then they did Punisher. They did Ghost Rider. They yeah, did Fantastic Four. Yeah, they they just expanded way too far. And and instead of coming up with you know say what you want about Ravage at least he was a unique character he hadn't you know there was no analog in the 20th century marvel universe so it was it was an attempt to still be in this new universe but have a completely new character i i have no opinion one way or the other i i remember reading the first issue and i, I have no memory of it of what the hell it was about i thought the art was halfway decent cuz it was paul ryan i always liked paul ryan but i i really don't remember anything about it well, I, I, I never read it, so I don't really have a right to an opinion on it. I'm just echoing what I've heard. Yeah, see, see that's what I'm saying. I, I, I don't, I can't really remember anything one way or the other. But you know, each one of those characters had a hook. You know, in the beginning, you know, Spider-Man was a new Spider-Man. Doom was possibly the same Doom. Were we going to find? You know, so that each one of them had a hook. But didn't then they have just, didn't they have Stanley come back to write the first issue of Ravage 2019? Oh yeah, yeah. It was supposed to be him and Burn. Which is another reason why I think that that Ravage, um, both why it, it never really worked, and also why it I, as I recall, and again this is just my fuzzy memory on this, but I think that already had a um, oh what's the word I want to use? It already had kind of a uh, stigma because burn this was at the time where burn was starting to gain a reputation for coming in upsetting the apple cart and then just you know taking off to the next pro you know getting pissed or whatever and taking off 
before he really even got a chance to do much of anything. With Ravage, he he literally never even showed up. You know what I mean? It was like there was a lot of talk about this you know this mysterious project that he and Stan Lee had in the works, and it was going to be a big deal, and it was going to be this, and it was going to be that. And then Byrne bailed before it even came out. So I, I think there was already a stink on that title you know, before the mm. first issue even got released. So maybe people were kind of predisposed to dump on it you know, before they even got a chance to read it. But again, like I say, that's just my memory. So don't don't you know take that to the bank. But no, maybe somebody who's listening will have a greater memory of 2099, or will have a you know will have read everything, and they could even clue us into where we're off base. There used to be a 2099 podcast that was really good, and they were going through all this stuff in publication order. But I I think they've pod faded now. I can't remember. Mm. But uh, but I was enjoying the early the early episodes of that. Uh, just as far as email goes, just while I'm on the while the thoughts in my head, and I probably should have mentioned it when we did Russell's letter. Now Russell did do this, but uh, we still get some emails to the Gmail account. And if anybody is inclined to write in, I would ask try to remember to send it to bins at two truefreaks dot com instead of the Gmail account because it's just easier for us if they're all in the same place. Well, if that's the case, then we need to change up the uh, tag at the end of the episode because the tag at the end encourages them to write to back to the bins at gmail.com. So that may be why everything's still going into there. So we'll have to we'll have to work on that. All right. Well, that's your tag, so I'm leaving that right. totally in your hands, my friend. All right, I can do that. Well, are we ready to go on to the final part of this? We got enough time, you think? Yeah, I think we could. Uh, we can squeeze in a DC. And then right. I don't know if we're going to have time for Bill's book. Bill? Mine won't work if I turn it on now, I don't think. Eh, whatever you say. <laughs> All right. So this time around, this is, uh, hopefully this is still within our mandate here. This is a fairly, as, as you know, relativity works here, this is a fairly recent book. So I leave you to judge if this is too recent or not. But... There's a couple of reasons why I chose this particular book. I have not ever read this one before. I was very curious to check it out. I've had it for quite some time, just hadn't ever got around to it. Anyway, I'll stop teasing. This is JSA All-Stars, number one. This is uh, cover dated July 2003. Original cover price was $2.50. And the cover is by uh, John Cassidy and I think his name is Mark Lewis. Something Lewis. Sure. I think it's Mark Lewis. I'm going to interrupt you just for a second because when you said it's within our mandate, my interpretation of the mandate is at least for the Marvel and DC books, 10 years old or older. So this does fit within that. Okay. That works. It kills me to think that this is 10 years old already, but well, yeah, it is. 10 and a half. <laughs> yeah. Ugh. How time flies. I really like the cover on it, though. It has... Um, a very modern version of the Flash, the Golden Age Flash, running towards us, the reader, and he's surrounded by uh, Dr. Fate, Wildcat, Green uh, Lantern, Hawkman, and Stargirl. And then what's really cool is the the entire series of this did this, is that whoever the, the characters were on the cover, whoever the heroes were, and some of them just had one single hero, in the background behind them, was an actual piece of golden age art taken from God knows where. 
of either that same character or the um, the Golden Age analog of that character. So, for example, like if the cover had the modern day Mr. Terrific forefront on the cover, then the background image behind him would be the Golden Age Mr. Terrific. I, th- I thought that was a really nice artistic touch. So the background image here is a Golden Age... Uh, art piece of the you know again the golden age flash golden age uh, green lantern and golden age uh dr fate with uh i think he has the half helmet here too but uh i really like the the art on the cover the interior art is fantastic it is uh salvaluto and uh who the hell is the inker on this i don't have the credits in front of me uh, I'm doing I, this I very do. old school. The, do the you anchor is Bob Almond. Bob Almond. Almond, that's Almond. right. Um, yeah, that's right. This, this credits are at the end of the book. So it's written by David Goyer and Jeff Johns, who were, I think they were doing the, the regular JSA title at the time. Uh, Salvaluto's the penciler, Bob Allman, inker, and that's as far as I'm going to go on the credits on this. I'm doing this very old school. This I, I have no pre-written synopsis on this. Uh, read it this afternoon, so I'm just going to go in that vein. So we start out, story begins with the Spectre kind of doing a very uh, Phantom Stranger kind of thing where he's coming in, he's speaking directly to us, the reader, and saying, Hi, I'm the Spectre, and uh, you know, I used to be the Lord's Wrath, now I'm the Spirit of Redemption, and I want to talk to you a little bit about my pals, the Justice Society. And he goes on to say that basically... The uh, the case that we're about to read about is uh, is going to test them severely, kind of thing. Turn the page, and fifteen thousand feet above South Florida, so I'm like, hey, all right, it's in my neck of the woods. We have Sand, and this used to be Sandy the Golden Boy. Now he's the leader of the team named Sand, and I liked this character a lot. I thought he was actually really cool. And he is questioning, he's talking to Icicle, and this is the new Icicle. This is the son of the original Icicle, and he's basically trying to redeem the guy. He's like, you know, I know you don't really want to be a bad guy. You know, it's it's not too late for you. You know, why don't you turn away from the bad guy path? Why don't you come join us? And Icicle basically shoots him down. He says he's not interested in being a legacy hero. He doesn't give a damn about his father. And uh, as I tried to tell you before, and you turn the page, he says... I already belong on a team. And as he says that, his teammate, Solomon Grundy, shows up. Now, Grundy, as you may recall, has a serious grudge against, mostly against the Golden Age Green Lantern, but really, by this point, it has spilled over to the JSA proper. He hates all these guys. And so he fights Sand, and eventually he frees uh, Icicle as well by basically making the plane crash and they're able to get away. They're joined by the rest of the team, which is Ragdoll, this guy Rival, who I cannot remember, but he basically looks like a like a dark version of the Flash. Oh, Kestrel, the, the Golden Age Flash, not Golden Age the Flash, current. yeah. Uh, Kestrel, who uh, I remember from early issues of uh, Hawk and Dove, uh, Shiv. Tigress, who I think is the daughter of the Golden Age Tigress and the Sportsmaster, if I'm not mistaken, they have formed, along with Icicle and Solomon Grundy, they have formed the new Injustice Society. So Sand is outnumbered uh, severely at this point. And off panel, we see somebody say, seven against one, turn the page, 
beautiful, beautiful two-page splash here. Gorgeous art. And the JSA has arrived. And Mr. Fant- or, excuse me, Mr. Terrific is saying, you know what? I could be wrong about Sam being the leader of the team. I think actually Mr. Terrific may have been leader during this time. Anyway, he says, that's hardly fair play, is it? And I really like this would make a great poster. It's a beautiful image. And you've got everybody. You've got Dr. Fate. You've got Wildcat, Mr. Terrific, Our Man, Dr. Midnight, Hawkman, Hawk Girl, The Flash, Star Spangled Kid. She hadn't, uh, apparently, she hadn't yet changed her name to Star Girl. And actually, Green Lantern, this is when he was going by the name Sentinel, which I never really cared for all that much. But that's how he's identified here. So it's a lot of fighting. Everybody pairs off with. You know their their negative number or you know their own uh, particular foe kind of thing. A lot of fighting stuff going on. A lot of biffing around, and basically, somebody has supplied the Injustice Society with these little discs that have a like an A. It's almost like a, like the letter A on it, like a like a what's that called? Like a chevron symbol on them. And they managed to tag the heroes with these discs, certain heroes. And when they tag them, they fade out. And it turns out that the heroes that are tagged are the original heroes, the, the surviving members of the original JSA. So we've got, you know, the Flash and Green Lantern and Hawkman, the original guys. They all get tagged. And then once they're tagged, the Injustice Society decides uh, that they're done. They hear this this disembodied voice that says, your job is finished, and they all fade away. Sand got tagged, but they didn't take him. Instead, his body was transmuted. Because at this point, because of something that had happened to him way, way, way back, I believe it was in the 70s in Justice League, he is actually now a silicon-based life form. And so they have basically transmuted the silicon that makes up his body, which is essentially sand. They've transmuted it into glass. So they kind of pulled like a Medusa type of thing on him. And Mr. Triffick's left to figure out, you know, what can we do? Can we save him? And at the very end of the thing, the specter shows up gives them kind of a bunch of mysterious, you know, gobbledygook. Again, pulling very much a a Phantom Stranger type of thing here. And while he deals with them and he's talking to them, you get to the very end of the book, and this is the part that confused me utterly. Because you have this alleyway scene, and this cloud of smoke appears this green cloud of smoke remember during this time the specter was actually hal jordan hal jordan green lantern he had died he's the new specter during this time anyway so he he's the one that appears in this alleyway dumps out from inside of his cloak he dumps out sentinel hawkman wildcat and the flash dumps them on the ground and then i guess it's not really him. It's this guy. Does he even give an, I don't even think he gives a name. I guess maybe his name is legacy. Here's what he says. He's, he, he goes on a, a, a whole thing here and he says, your teammates will serve as the most wonderful catalyst to sow my seeds, my spread uh, to spread my power, the power of legacy. 
is, maybe is, the guy's name is Legacy. I, I I don't know. I thought that was uh, Johnny's Thunderbolt. Is it? That's what I thought. I I haven't read the second ah, issue, so I don't yeah. know. That could yeah, he kind of does resemble the Thunderbolt. Maybe he is because I do remember hearing that he went bad at some point. The Thunderbolt. Oh, okay. I yeah, I do kind of vaguely remember that story with the with the Thunderbolts. This may or may not be another you know Thunderbolt gone bad story. Yeah, and, see, and, I'm, and yeah, I'm in the background, he's got, he's got the actual Spectre basically imprisoned in the background. Yeah, he's impersonating him. Because at the end of his talk with the with the Justice Society, I guess I missed this before. He did disappear. He says, uh, and when you are all healed, I shall lead you to legacy. And then he disappears in a puff of smoke, leaving them behind. And then that's when you turn the page. There's a new puff of smoke, and he steps out of an alley. But is this actually is this actually the Spectre? Or was it even the Spectre that appeared to the JSA? Was it this guy impersonating the Spectre and taunting them? Or so? I, I'm that's really the impression confused. I have, is that it was him impersonating the Spectre, oh, okay. and that he's had the Spectre... All along, uh, you know, and imprisoned in a very Christ-like position. Yeah, yeah, he is. That said, though, even though I, I had a little trouble following, I'm sure all this gets cleared up in subsequent issues, which I have not read. I just read just this first issue. All that said, man, this was a blast. Because for one thing, he hasn't done a hell of a lot of work, at least not a lot of, uh, of work that I could find listed on uh, on Mike's Amazing World uh, site, but I have long been a fan of Sal Valuto. I really like his stuff. Oh, it's awesome. Uh, I know him best from, he had a really good run on Justice League Task Force, and I really enjoyed his work on that book a lot. And I believe he did all of the issues. It was a very short-lived series in uh, the mid-90s. It was called Firebrand. And doesn't have anything to do with prior incarnations of Firebrand, that that character. It's just they were they were just using the name. But he was a new character, and uh I don't remember a hell of a lot about it other than I really enjoyed the art. The art was just fantastic. But his run on Justice League Task Force was really solid stuff, just because he he has a really distinct uh art style. I, I can't really I can't really describe it to you. I, I'm trying to think of like who would be similar to it, and I can't even think of somebody that's really all that similar to his art style. But I, I really like it. Um, who who would you compare him to, Paul? That's, as as you started to say that, I started looking, saying, "Okay, who would I compare him to?" Uh, uh, definitely somebody modern. I'm not sure. I'm trying to think now. There's, there's somebody in the, in the DC New Fifty Two that he's bringing to mind, and I can't think of who it is. Yeah, it, it looks a little bit like, say, Ethan Van Skyver. Maybe, yeah. You know what? That's Paul that's not Pelletier. a bad call. Yeah. Uh, I would say more Van Skyver than Pelletier. Van Skyver, yeah, yeah, very much in that. But it, 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 it's beautiful. Yeah, uh, I love his art. Inter- just a little interesting to me, like. The way he draws Grundy, it, it's it's off model because he looks more like the Frankenstein monster than he does yeah. Grundy. Yeah, uh, but does. but it still plays it still plays well, and I and I like it. Uh, the two page spread is beautiful, except I don't like the way he made the Flash look. He just made him look a little too old in that shot. 
Let me see. I'm going to flip back to that. Real I, quick. I, I get a kick out of every time, and and it's not that you're ever wrong about yeah. it. When but when you say pages should be a poster or a cover should be a poster, I get a kick out of it because if you had every poster that you wish you had, you'd have to buy a mansion to hang them up. Yep. Yeah, I, I could wallpaper my house. Yeah, but I, I I I stand by that though. I really wish I had a poster of this. I think oh, you know it's make a really good T-shirt too. Mm-hmm. It's just a it's a classic image of. You know, a, a team in action. I really like it. Now, the, there's the shot on uh, the, ele- I guess it's the 11th page, where uh, it's Grundy and Hawkman fighting. And uh, Grundy comes down with a, with a, basically punches kind of an overhand coming down uh, mm-hmm. and, and dents Hawkman's shield. Uh, that shot actually almost looks John Burnish to me. Yeah. Uh, but... I, I it's I, it's awesome because I, I like the way it looks to me. It doesn't look like there's a lot of speed to the blow, but it's like it looks like it has such weight that it's coming down so hard that right. it actually that that it's denting the shield with power as opposed to with force from you know uh, built up by speed. I, I don't know if that makes sense, but it just it, it's an impressive shot to me. No, it does. I, I like. I, I see exactly what you're saying. It's like, it's not that he's even necessarily making a fast swing. Is that he's so strong and and it's so, such force with the blow that that's what's causing it to happen. It's just he's powerful. Yeah, almost like it should almost be ripping Hawkman's arm off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he looks like it might be hurting him too. Like it's like, oh, you know, yeah. he's, he's really absorbing that blow. I uh, I was particularly impressed with Sal Valuto's women. I always thought he drew really beautiful women, and his uh, what did I say her name was Tigress. She's just sexy. I, I mm-hmm. really like the way he draws her. I, I like her outfit too. Uh, she had her outfit is uh, vaguely reminiscent of uh, Wolverine's. Oh, you just yellow and for me, man. <laughs> <laughs> but. Uh, I really I, I want to read the rest of this now. I the sad thing is though is looking at his credits on uh, Mike's Amazing World, it doesn't look like he did the whole rest of the series because this was only an eight issue mini, right? I mean, if eight if eight issues is considered a mini, where where does it switch from being a mini to a maxi? How many issues? I have no Maybe that's idea. Twelve. But I'm, uh, I'm going to go with twelve. He's listed here as he did this issue, and then he came back and did the final issue, um, number eight. So I don't know who did the issues in between. It's really good. I, I, I like the way he draws Icicle. I like the shot. Uh, what's this? One, two, third page of the story down at the bottom. Uh, you have a panel with a close-up of Icicle's face cut right into a panel with a close-up of... Uh, what's his name? Uh, Salt? What was his name? Sand? Sand. <laughs> <laughs> close so. up of his face and it almost looks like a, like one of those split screen almost like the Spider-Man cut with the face like they're lined up so that it's two sides of the same face but it's right. two different characters uh, he he also draws an awesome uh, Spectre mm-hmm. really well done and, and to give credit where it's due really well inked good detail work, nice line work everything about it, it's, it's just a beautiful issue Seeing here where uh, the very next thing that he did, that's, that Valuto did after this, he did 
two issues of Rick Veach's run on Aquaman and Almond's The Inker on that as well. So I might have to hunt that down because that I bet you that's really pretty as well. Is that the long-haired, hook-clawed uh, Aquaman? Um, that seemed so edgy at the time. Oh, he had the now water I, hand at the at the time. I think the water hand is better than the hook hand, actually. Yeah. I think they're both silly, but yeah, I would take the water hand over the, the hook hand. I'd... At the time, that seemed so cool and so edgy and all, but looking back on it now, it's it's the worst kind of 90s. Yeah, you exactly. know, it, it it really you know, and I try not to be one of those 90s bashers, you know, those those people that give the 90s a hard time, but because uh, I I happen to really believe that you know there was much more good than than bad in the oh, 90s, absolutely. but. But every once in a while, there's something like that that you just look at and go, okay, there's just no defending that. That's 90s and the Well, to wrap up the problems of the 90s in one word, it's excess. Excess, yeah. First of all, they were putting out too many titles. So there was the quality titles out there, but there were also some crap titles that were coming out just because they were rushing so much to market. And a lot of writers and artists fell into the trap of having to overdo things. Uh, you know, and then the first order is, you know, the giant, giant guns or, you know, Rob Liefeld drawing Captain America with breasts, you know, whatever, whatever it is, but just, right. you know, excess things just taken a step too far. Did you ever read any, um, it looks like about the first two years here that he did on Mark Spector Moon Knight. He did that, and he also uh, he had a long run on Black Panther, and this was the Black oh, Panther that uh, where Mark Al- or not Mark um, James Owsley was working on it. See, he was Marvel paired Knights with Black Panther. Was that what? I'm sorry, the Marvel Knights Black Panther. It may have become. Let me see. With the first issue, it wasn't, but it may have become. No, I'm pretty sure the Marvel Knights one was Marvel Knights right from the beginning. So I guess it's not yeah. Right. See, I don't see it listed here on the on the cover. So but I I, I, I really read very very little Moon Knight after Bill Sienkiewicz. Yeah, me neither. I know I have the first issue, Mark Spector Moon Knight number one, but I don't think I ever read anything past that issue. I think it, I picked it up just because it was a number one, and I knew who Moon Knight was, but failed to hold my interest. But I'm just looking to see what else. Because, I mean, he really, you, you pull up his page and there's really just, there's not a lot. I mean, he, he did a lot, or maybe it actually doesn't look like it, there's much credits because he was one of these guys that came to a book and stayed, mm. which just didn't seem to happen a lot during this particular era. But, uh, yeah, he had a long run. He, had, he did the first, looks like it's pretty consistent, too. He did the first two years on Mark Spector Moon Knight. He did... First two years on uh, Justice League Task Force. That actually might be all the. That might be the entire run of that book. I'm not sure because it didn't last a long time. He did Firebrand and he did a lot of you know one-off stuff. And then he did uh, looks like a couple years on Black Panther. And what's funny is I, I'm looking here. It looks like he was pretty consistently teamed up with uh, with this Almond guy, whoever he is. So, well, I don't know, but he's he's definitely you know. One of these days, we got to do another. Uh, we got to do another episode about uh, underappreciated artists or you know, like little known artists type of things. Because he's been on my list for a long time. Whenever I see something by him, I'll pick it up just because it's him. Because I I really dig his art style, 
but uh, just not one of those people I hear uh, ever mentioned. Not to be totally honest, he's been under my radar for a long time. I mean, I, I've seen some things by him, but I, I can't say he really caught my eye that much. And now I'm looking at this and, and realizing that, you know, I was wrong in not having him catch my eye because he deserves a lot of credit. This is a beautiful book. I'm, I'm just taking a quick look. Uh, I <laughs> think the last issue he did of uh, Justice League Task Force was issue 23, possibly. And he's inked in that by somebody else. He's inked in that by... Uh, by Stegbauer McKenna with Gray. I don't even know who... Oh, I think it's three people. Stegbauer, McKenna, and Gray uh, did the inking. Yeah. And, and it's very... The style... The inking does affect it because the style seems dramatically different from yeah. what, what we're seeing in this book. Not that it looks bad at all. It's still good stuff, but it, it is uh, a much looser art style than uh, than than in the JSA uh, book. Yeah, it looks like on Task Force he was frequently teamed up with Jeff Albrecht is the name that I'm seeing coming up here more than any other. But... Uh, but anyway, there, there was a couple of reasons that I, I chose this particular issue. Um, I've been listening to back episodes, early episodes. I've been listening in order to old episodes of Tales of the Justice Society of America, which longtime Two True Freaks listeners will know as is uh, a show, a, a late lamented show that uh, I used to do with my buddy Michael Bailey talking all about of course the justice society and in one of those old episodes one of the early episodes mike was talking about this series and asking me if i'd ever read it and i i heard myself say well you know i've got all the issues i've just never read it and i'm like i do i have that <laughs> so i i had to look it up and I, I pulled them out the other day you know intent to sit down and read them um so when it, it came time to do bins, I thought, well, you know, what the hell? I'll go ahead and I'll pull this uh, this first issue out and read, you know, see what I think of it. And if it's worth talking about on bins, then that'll be the comic that I do. The other reason that I decided to go with this particular book, especially after I read it and really, really enjoyed it, was the time has come to tell you guys in the audience that after a much, much too long hiatus damn near two years by this point mike and i have finally uh been able to work things out we've got our schedules in sync finally after all this time and uh hell it may even have happened by the time you're hearing this episode but if not keep your ears open very shortly for the return of the just uh, for uh, the return of Tales of the Justice Society of America. Yes, we are finally coming off hiatus. We are finally coming back. We're picking up coverage right where we left off. And very, very shortly, we will be getting, uh, we will be knee deep into the crisis on infinite Earth. So we are uh, very excited about it. We have a, a lot of episodes in the can. You're going to hear all about this uh, in the in the comeback special that we're doing. Basically, the, the the secret history of what's been going on behind the scenes, literally for months now, to do with uh, Tales of the JSA. So all of you guys that have been writing us and messaging us on Facebook and just generally pestering us, where the hell is Tales? Well, 
we've uh i think we've done an admirable job of being tight-lipped for a long long time because we've been working on this for quite a while we wanted to make sure that not only could we come back but that when we come back it wasn't just going to be we do an episode or two and then we fade away again we wanted to have a good stockpile of episodes that when we come back we can be back and we have a buffer so I feel like very queuing an applause sign because I am very psyched (laughs) that you guys are back I love that show and I'm looking forward to listening to it that's the thing is uh, you know we loved it too we we absolutely do we're thrilled to be back and uh, the two it's funny the two of us are we're, we're texting each other like like teenage girls all the time here lately like you know just we're so excited to be back, and we're, we're texting back and forth, you know, different messages. Hey, let's not forget to cover this. And we, oh, yeah, we need to talk about that, and let's get this scheduled and that scheduled. So we're, we're just as excited as, as I'm hoping that both the listeners that were familiar with the show and that have been asking us for years now, when is it coming back? But also I'm hoping that uh, folks that may have never discovered the show or maybe you only ever heard about it, but you decided not to listen because you knew that, you know, it it wasn't out being put out anymore. Whatever the case may be, I'm hoping that you'll either rediscover the show or discover the show anew for the first time. Uh, Give us a try. Tales of the Justice Society of America. If you just like hearing a couple old guys talk about something, you know, comic book related that they are super, super passionate about. And not just bitching and moaning about you're you're gonna have something you know you're you're gonna enjoy the show because we really are having a blast doing it, and uh, we're we're pulling out all the stops for this one. It's uh, it's super in depth coverage, um, sprinkled with uh, snark and sarcasm, but a <laughs> lot of, a lot of love too because we really enjoy the shit that we're talking about. It's just a blast, just a great show. So. Come check us out. That's Tales of the JSA. It's going to be right, right here on the uh, Two True Freaks feed, and uh, I think you're going to get a kick out of it. Well, that's that's one, you know, we've talked in the past about the passion coming through sometimes, and that's one I think that's that's part of the reason why that show is as good as it is, is because you two clearly love the material. Uh, and, and you can tell when you're listening to it that it's a labor of love when you're recording it. And... Uh, not only that, but it's it's just good material to hear about, too. I mean, the subject matter is quality subject matter, but the passion you two bring to it brings it to another level. And uh, like I said, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I appreciate it, man. I, I, I think you're in for a treat. I really do. I think you're going to enjoy it. If you, if you like the stuff that we used to do, it, it's, it's like falling off a bicycle. <laughs> you know, we're, mm. we're, we're right back to what we were doing before. So it's, it's like we never left. I guess uh, it's probably as good a point to go out as any. Oh, before we go, uh, Bill, you've been awful quiet this episode. Did you have anything else? Uh, closing thoughts on this? Yes, you do have a good la-la. <laughs> that didn't sound right. Yeah, yeah, thanks for that. Okay, then. Yeah, what do we have? We'll just do... Uh, yeah, uh, Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by visiting the Two True Freaks section of www.forumforgeeks.com. Back to the Bins is produced in association with the Two True Freaks podcast, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com and is a registered trademark of Demanzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. 
Back to the Bins is a proud member of both the League of Comic Book Podcasts, which you may find at comicbooknoise.com league, and also the Comics Podcast Network, which you may find at comicspodcast.com. Take a moment to stop by their respective sites and support their other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week.